0: Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week, our trailblazer is Christina Lamp-Honored, a leading authority on battery innovation globally and a proven market-shaping entrepreneur. Christina has founded and scaled two innovative technology companies and co-chairs the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Energy. Her passion and enthusiasm for our collective ability to impact change combined with her technical wizardry, make her an extraordinary science communicator and a powerhouse for broadening the clean energy movement. We believe conversations about our clean energy future should be as relevant around a kitchen or a classroom table as they are around boardroom or political tables. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation and it starts with you. Christina, it is such a thrill to have you in our Trailblazers series. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. I, I want to kick off. I feel like there's, there's no way of saying it. You're someone that exudes energy. In fact, you've been described as someone who can exude energy even in the most prosaic of settings, which feels very appropriate to me for someone who's also been described as the queen of batteries. So I'm interested,
1: where does your energy come from? I don't know, a positive outlook on on life, maybe um, a willingness to be humiliated, to try difficult things, to fail and stand up again, maybe. And a lot of friends. (laughs) Was that something that was instilled in you growing up and
0: that you learned from your parents? Or is it something that's developed over the course of your entrepreneurial and inventive career?
1: I think I always was a very curious person. I could never read enough books, uh, try enough things. Um, I already negotiated when I was in elementary school, if I could write a play and put the whole school on stage. And I organized a lot of things and the grownups around me were very interested in letting these crazy ideas happen. And I was allowed to experiment a little bit, which was really, really cool. My father was uh, quite driven and became a worldwide inventor and we traveled extensively. So I also got to be a little person, even as a kid, at the dinner table with lots of nationalities. We traveled, I would say, by the age of six. I was a pro at cocktail parties. (laughs) (laughs) What a skill to have before you even start primary school.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) What area of uh, invention and research
1: was your father in? He was in high power transmission, so he took Asia remember, very from four percent market share to ninety-six percent market share on this high power. When we went on uh, vacations with a family car trips, we would have to stand and really admire the transmission lines because he just said, "Guys, you have no idea. This is so beautiful." <laughs> and we're like, "Yeah, Dad, it's really cool." <laughs> yeah. So it's fair to say this is kind of almost in your
0: genes. I'm interested. I mean, you're renowned for your pioneering work in developing and commercialising batteries. So
1: where did the battery part come from? What got you hooked on them? Uh, So I grew up in a town where it was uh, either music or kind of technical. Like it was really cool to be a technologist and school was easy for me. And, of course, I couldn't be just like my dad, so I had to find a little space which became low power transmission. (laughs) So he was the high power guy and I was the little power guy. Um, But I got really fascinated quite early on with my studies. Um, I uh, got involved even as a teenager in high school in the environmental debate. I grew up in Sweden and um, the oil crisis had already hit and there was a lot of awareness. And my generation of kids were, not experiencing it, but we heard a lot of very serious grown-up talk, and we picked up a fact or two. And I remember writing a letter to the editor at 15. I was like, "Okay, so solar panels are only 15 percent efficient. Isn't that good enough? Shouldn't we just deploy? Like, come on, grown-ups, let's do this." And with that, um, kind of, I got like obsessed with facts, and you know, uh, there was a lot of them. Um, Uh, ideology around let the facts lead the way and let the facts be part of the discussion and then let philosophy lead policy, but be anchored in what is possible with stretch goals. So I grew up in that type of kind of framework, which I think is quite helpful when you're also curious to see and test boundaries in general.
0: Absolutely. And I'm interested, I mean, given you were, you know, sort of alive to this at six uh, in dinner party conversations, you were writing letters at 15. Uh, for you, how do you reflect on the progress that has
1: or hasn't been made in 2021? Yeah, so it's tough, right? So we, um, um, so for me, the pandemic is the the best possible experiment of what we're willing to do. And it illustrates, I think, what we already knew, which is If there is a crisis that hits in your lifetime close to your life of yourself or your immediate family, you're willing to listen to new facts, to new ideas, to new policies. You're even willing to lock yourself in your house for a year. You are willing to wear what all fashionistas would say, lovely, right? And all of a sudden go out with masks, (laughs) get dressed in paper or whatever it takes, right? Because this is an immediate crisis. Climate change is one of those. It's not an immediate crisis, except if it hits you, whereby you live in an area that gets hit so hard that you could not imagine it. And the sadness for me on one side is the recognition that I even knew this, and I'm not an environmental scientist. I'm just an innovator, a market shaper. I am kind of in this ecosystem of people who dare and are allowed to, and even sometimes encouraged to think differently. But I knew this was a huge problem 30 years ago. So to me, the sadness is we know where this is heading. And when we look at what we have taken from the pandemic learnings, It is still a lot of big talk in policy and in handing out money. Um, And the sadness is really around who gets the attention, who gets the money, who gets the opportunities to really deploy against these. But the joy is we have more awareness that small things can be done that can have big impact. For example, what happens when nobody travels for a year? So media celebrated by and large, whoa, this was awesome. Well, if you look at the trajectory, barely noticeable, but noticeable. So that's a good point. So it's a reference point. So yes, we can, you can, I can have impact just by choosing. So what the pandemic gave to us was an awareness. So. We read more, we attended more webinars, uh, inquisitive journalists got a better platform, right? (laughs) You have more interested parties, there is more discussions, we are starved for human connections and many of us got really curious and learned new things. So I think there is an acknowledgement that most of us will drive our diets to more plant-based foods. Most of us will consider at least in the short term whether we should own an EV or a fossil fuel car, or even own a car, most of us will say, I I actually did okay during this year. I didn't buy any clothes and it was okay. Like I actually have five cardigans. I really don't need six. Let me wear these down. So I don't know if this is enough to build a tipping point, but at least we have uh, grounded some level of, it wasn't that hard to make these certain sacrifices What was hard was not meeting people and not sharing joy and sadness together, not simple things like eating together. It was not what we were eating. It was the togetherness that we missed the most. And I think that is in principle, the underlying principle for sustainability, like to think about what do you actually need and how much do you actually need to make and how much do you need to have and how much... need to strive for and and what is it really we already know from behavioral science in these circles that we see a a mega trend going away from owning things to experiences that had already started and it is propelling in across all ages right now so do we have a shift absolutely is it enough not sure yet uh is it an opportunity for people who have a microphone to at least speak to what is still possible and yet being able to give the alternative uh, story as well, if we don't do this, what then happens? That is actually the obligation, in my opinion, of those who could see a little bit longer than just tomorrow. I love
0: that. And I think that's such a powerful point too, that the kind of forced stop to the autopilot we were on allows us to step back and reflect and go, actually, to your point, how much do we need? How much do we have to make? And be more conscious in our consumerism. I want to speak to you about togetherness. We're going to circle back to some of the broader macro environmental piece and sustainability a little bit later on. But There's an interesting togetherness of the journey of Cadenza too because from what I gather, the Supercell battery architecture began as a project between yourself and your husband in your garage. Am I right? Is that where it started? That's right. Yes. Do you have an enormous garage? How does that even begin
1: there? (laughs) Like it was basically a spreadsheet to start with. Those don't you need a lot of space for. So we had this idea (laughs) that could you not take the – basic inventions that came from lessons learned in cell phones and laptops and put them into cars and we did that in our previous company and scaled that and ultimately launched big platforms but we were still in that time locked into the paradigm of smaller selves so for cadenza having basically started a company set sail let it sail into the ocean and watch the sunset and do some other cool things we just sat back and said you know wouldn't it be possible to have cost and safety be the two governors of the future while keeping performance? And let us have a voice at redefining what this means. So when you can have basically some little time to think about kind of what is an of course answer to a question? So one of those is, would you like a battery that helps offset fossil fuel? CO two generation, yes, of course, of course. Would you do this if you could afford it, or if you could make a little bit of money? Yes, of course, of course. Would you have as one of your buying criteria that it cannot explode? Yes, of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So with that, we created a cell that cannot explode, that cannot go into fires. And that is a new definition of safety and reliability. The industry up to this point had basically said, we will make you a battery and we will wrap it around or put it inside a fire blanket, a steel chest, cabinet. So when it goes kind of haywire, you're okay. But you have seen on Twitter and other public media that okay in the automotive world means Yes, you have five to seven minutes to get out of the car before it explodes, but is that really a yes, of course answer? I don't think so. (laughs) That is not cool. Like the fact that they shield the flames so you can jump over them, that's nice, but it's frankly not acceptable in my opinion. So what we created was a platform that allows, it just gives you a warning light, says Okay, one of your batteries has been disconnected, seek service, Mm -hmm. but you have a 100 or a few hundred of those batteries. So you have less than 1% of the battery capacity discontinued in your drive that you have planned, which is the gift of this technology platform, and frankly, the enabler for adoption. So how do we get this now into deployment? is the discussion is now starting, right? So then the pandemic hits and it's like everything shuts down. So then we're like, okay, now let's refine it. Let's make it even cheaper. Let's make sure it's fully certified and let's see if we can do cost down even right now. So that's how we use the pandemic year. But as the world is coming back up again, we are back on to scaling up and uh, basically, hopefully deploying in some mass production over the next few years. That's
0: unreal, and I'm excited to watch the next evolution of that. I, I'm intrigued because my understanding is that um, you mentioned earlier you kind of get encouraged to, to think differently. You get to dare to think differently, which I love. And I'm interested because it, I've heard that the tripod of safety, your commitment to safety, cost, and performance, was something that was met with a lot of scepticism when you first came out with this is what we're going to do, what's possible. What's To your point, I find it interesting in the contrast of I answered, of course, to all those questions, and yet there was still this really healthy level of scepticism. I'm sure that's not the first time you've met scepticism in your pioneering work. But can you talk us through why there was scepticism and and generally, how do you face that as a pioneering innovator?
1: Yeah, so that's an awesome question. Um, I think in general, when you say something is possible that people have thought of before but never seen, I think human nature in general is like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and then it goes to, and you sit there and you're like, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm in this rubber boat on this stormy ocean. It's like the steam ships and they're like, hello. And I'm like, hey, hey, I have something cool. Listen to me. you know. <laughs> and when I got their attention, it's like, prove it. <laughs> and then I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have all this data, like not today, <laughs> and then you book a meeting, and then you book another meeting, and they're like, data looks good. Can we see it? Yes, yes, come on over. <laughs> so it feels like all the time uh, there is a skepticism, but there's almost always an opening if you're right about the market assumptions. And I think we're right. The market needs something that can be manufactured locally that meets the yes of course on the buying criteria, and that meets the larger objective of an energy transition. And I believe that by, I think we get a lot of credit for the technical invention, but ultimately if Cadenza succeeds, we will have succeeded in creating local economies around this. So by Mm. deploying multiple manufacturing sites across the world, stimulating local economies, generating great green jobs and having local service, you basically allow the economy to flourish. So the resistance is typically tied to what is perceived as the framework or the infrastructure or the kind of ecosystem of economics. But rarely is there an acknowledgement that none of this is static and we are in a supercharged transformational time. The transition through the pandemic of going from kind of old economic paradigm to what we will see in the future that speed increased tremendously so that feels almost strange uh, to hold on to well it used to be this way Well, sorry, it isn't like that and like maybe you think like that <laughs>
0: Well, I just wanted to ask you, you know, that you mentioned that rapid hyper-speed of transformation. What new challenges does that create for you as a leader? What have you had to learn to do or get more comfortable at in order to be able to function in a very different operating environment?
1: Yes, I think, first of all, uh, the way we communicate has been broken from the last paradigm to the new paradigm. The fact that this is so easy, like you and I sit in different time zones, we sit in different continents. countries, half an earth apart, But we know each other, so we have met in person. And with that, you can have the warmth and the connection. I think, basically, friendships and opportunities to have real discussions over virtual platforms when you already have met has just been proven to actually work. Is it as fast? Of course not. Is it as daring, as progressive, as uh, demanding? No, but can we make progress this way? Yes. And there are certain types of progress that require multiple meetings. Go back to my analogy of the steamboat and the little rubber boat, show me the data. It's another Zoom meeting of one hour where I can prepare data and I can show that to you effortlessly. When you want to debate it with me and we allocate half a day, it's probably better we are in the same room. But I think this has really changed the way we move data forward. So when it's a lot of opinions, very difficult. When it is mental references and frameworks and mental models, very difficult. When it's actually data or design or real policy documents or finished writings where everybody comes prepared to the meeting, we have all studied the text and then we say, well, paragraph 72 could maybe be written this way, totally no problem and actually a real enhancement. I think the biggest challenge when we look at the old paradigm, pre-pandemic and after is in how we use electricity specifically in the energy field. So communications has shifted forever. And with that, the telecom industry is up like crazy and is basically. Fitting into the whole idea of owning a part of this energy transition. They already own the towers. They already own the backup power. They already are consumers of electricity. And here is battery technology arriving on stage, basically emboldened by many politicians across the world. And the telephone, whole telephone industry that went through this very very demanding transition from copper to wireless is already at the station they already have diesel backup generators they have lead acid technology here is an opportunity to earn new income streams demand response peak shaving uh, security and how the telephone is used as a smartphone as a computer as the number one means of remote communications. They are now kings of the infrastructure. That's really interesting. So the buying power has been shifted through policy in part, but also through this technology shift and maturity.
0: Fascinating. And what do you think that will mean? You know, you say there's an opportunity here. Are you confident
1: that opportunity is gonna be seized and well used? Oh yeah, I am am 100% sure. So what it will mean is The way we used to buy and sell power in society, which is a little bit different depending on where you are. In most wealthy countries, it is split between the generators and the distributors. And then depending on how much electricity you buy, you have more or less visibility into if it's more expensive at day or at night. So take the example in New York State, here in the U.S., uh, there's high level of transparency. So the offset between peak and off-peak is almost 30 cents per kilowatt hour. That's a lot. So if you can own the battery, if you have the right to own the battery, you get that capital investment paid off in very, very short time. And you could potentially become a harvester of electricity and sell it. You could set all of your electronics. You can link it to your phone. You have this electronic revolution happening uh, and basically decide, oh, today I'm going to wear a sweater and I'm going to not heat up my house or the opposite today, I'm going to dress really lightly because it's really hot and I'm going to keep my shades down to save on electricity. When you have the tool and when you get access to the data, you change your behavior. And with that, this wireless platform, the data sharing with the consumer. So basically pushes away from centralized to decentralized in a really fundamental way. Policy has already been paving the way to this, and I believe the pandemic actually accelerated this, not by the virus. It's a tech trend that was already in play, and it's now happening.
0: That's a huge and fascinating transition, and I want to bring you back to a phrase you used before, and during research for this conversation, it was one of the first times I'd come across this language and you used it, you and you said before, ecosystem economics. And I'm interested by that phrase and it's something I know you've applied to the way even you've approached things with Cadenza. I know you made the choice not to manufacture yourself but to actually licence your technology. Can you talk to us about what you mean when you say ecosystem economics and why you think that's important?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I was the co-chair for the Future of Energy with World Economic Forum, In the old days, a year ago, when we met in person, (laughs) we would have all these countries together. And I had an epiphany where there is no lack of wanting to be in the forefront, but there's a real lack of understanding how that works in the local economy. So the idea that you can create an ecosystem in a geography where you have policy champions with finance champions locally, with management basically. So then you can create jobs, you can align on the policy, you can make sure that local ecosystem works, but that it's also anchored in a global platform. Specifically, this is critical when we have discussions in uh, not the wealthiest countries, But there is a lot of interest from wealthy countries to come in, both on a philanthropic level, but also for profit, um, to come in and help sponsor and offset some of the capital costs. These projects are very profitable. So you can have global economics work in harmony with local desires for green jobs, for security of electricity supply, and to tailor those policies. And it will require. That we work together. Um, Cadenza brings to all these discussions uh, a, a very nice level of depth in batteries, both in how they're used, how they're made, how they're sourced. And what has happened, and this is also interesting, happened during the pandemic. It started a little bit before, and it's now fast escalating. Is Kidanza had initially said, we will license the technology, which is a generous way of saying, we will make actually a lot of money. We will wait a little bit for it, but initially we will dive in and just make sure you're successful. The interesting aspect right now is that multiple regions are asking us to be either part of the management, at least during the setup phase. And some are exploring joint ventures and some are saying, um, why don't we sponsor your team actually to run the factory? And then, You can be part of the setup of this. And so it's it's even more collaborative than I thought of when you and I met last time, where I thought that our gift is really to make sure it works, to set it up, to vet it, to make sure global and local champions come together and make this deal happen. But it feels almost like no, it's even a stronger yearning for getting more people involved to ensure the security and really have staying power in the game and this is i think where the ecosystem even gets stronger so if you have a stake in a successful future and you define it and it can be and this is the interesting aspect right that's what we we talked about before that sustainability has already proven to be extremely profitable even if you don't get credit for all the aspects of sustainability
0: so true. Uh,
1: and I love that approach.
0: I think that's such a powerful way of framing the conversation uh, and thinking through the solution in terms of the design of the economic reality and the business challenge. Uh, I want to speak to you about data because you mentioned it before, and I love this line that I read from you, and I want to quote it. Uh, it was in reference to your time at MIT, and you said you learn how to argue a point so that the data gets to speak. You just <laughs> enable the data, there's no spin. And I thought it was so interesting that you, that importance that you said, quite formative in your development of learning how to argue with data. Can you talk to us about why that matters and how that's held you in good stead with everything you've done since?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think that is true. One of my heroes is Hans Rusling who uh, I met through the TED speaker series, who always talked about factfulness. And he was so Mm -hmm. surprised by people holding such strong views that were true 30 years ago. And I'm sure you have read his book, Factfulness, or seen his speeches. And I was really impressed by that, because he basically put everybody to shame. So here are super intelligent people. And he asks three questions. And it's like statistical sampling. It could be a monkey. You don't have to have any knowledge. And the knowledge in general was really low. So for me, it meant, okay, so in the space where I feel credible, where I actually know, I must assert staying power in the discussion. I must fight for right. And when people take on kind of discussions on spin, which is of the most unfortunate where you have a good intention and you have a bad player who says well all of that it might be true but it's my story only that works and it's typically when you see somebody who really really want to profit off a, a very narrow thread inside a larger truth um it is very difficult and that is still very difficult to have an honest and open discussion on While this very narrow thread could be true, it does not equal that the other 99% is useless. In fact, if you place all your bets on this 1%, the risk of failure is really high. So this is where I have made it my, at least my attempt in these discussions where I'm privileged to participate, to elevate the discussion and say, what problem are we solving? We're actually, most of us are not solving the problem how this 1% truth makes money. That's very rarely in everybody's interest. What is in everybody's interest in this case is getting to this ecosystem economy, getting it translated into something tangible where the masses profit and the businesses profit, where the policy makers have staying power to put policy together so you can execute against a future without picking winners. I love that. And I want to apply, if I can, the factfulness idea
0: to the world of battery technology. If you'll indulge me for a minute, I feel like it is a world where a lot of people listening can be quite confused because you can read some news stories where you hear about the revolution in battery technology capability. And on the other hand, you read about exploding batteries or cost challenges or the environmental footprint. So I'd love uh, for you now, what's one, one battery myth you would love to dispel, stop everyone talking about, we need to stop devoting time to that, and what's one part of the battery conversation you'd love to elevate or allow
1: more people to understand? Yeah, um, that's an awesome challenge. I think on the what would I like to elevate is frankly the factfulness on safety because I feel there are players who are in the space who are doing something good, but is not they're not going all the way. So they know there are some issues in their solutions, but the providers are so large. And in fact, when there are studies made, they're silenced. That's terrible. So let the data sing, let the data get out and let's have an honest discussion. Let's define what safety means. And let's have the, the metric as it has to be answered, yes, of course. On things that people should stop worrying about is lithium-ion is a huge opportunity. It feels to me like we have no factfulness around the fact that there are two battery technologies that are completely dominating our world. One is lead acid. It was invented in the 1850s, and we're still having university programs to refine that technology. That's how hard batteries are, how difficult. And lead acid technology is the backbone of telecom today. It is of course the backbone of fossil fuel cars and a lot of other applications. We have had it in place so long, it is not gonna go away overnight. The other one is lithium ion. Lithium ion was invented in the seventies. It took a foothold in commercial markets in the nineties and it has grown every year ever since. performance improvements continue. Um, Sometimes it feels to me like every discussion starts with, well, Christina, give me an opinion. How long will Lithium I be here? And my answer is my entire career, and I probably have 30 or 40 years left to work on this. So sometimes we get so enamored and it is not to say new inventions are not important or basic research is not important. But if we are really um, dedicating time and effort and money into climate change, it has to be available now to make this work. And we can't do kind of little experiments. We have to deploy what we know. And I think that's really critical. Lithium mine is here for a really long time. We have a lot of inventions and tweaks that happen over the last year and will continue to happen over the next 30 years. It doesn't go away that fast. And I think the aspect of just what does it take to commercialize, you have to have a fully mature supply chain. You can never afford specialty. And frankly, you can never reach mass. Even if all development work stopped, you would still have to deploy what you have in order to reach any type of cost targets and lithium-ion has just arrived at the cost targets where it's basically on par with lead acid it's just a very different performance metrics and yes lithium-ion is environmentally friendly and lead acid has the issue of leads where the industry has gotten very good at recycling so very different use cases both will exist and then on the periphery the one percent strands that get almost all the attention because it's so extravagant and it's It's like complete spin of what could happen. It's like the idea of economics, like I only look at these three metrics. Everything else is ignored in my economic model. Uh, That's how we're allowing that discussion. So lithium ion is really, really critical. And we have a chance to really deploy this together. I so
0: appreciate you giving us that reframe on uh, the the perspective we might have on the battery industry. One of the things you said in your answer was you've got to let the data sing. And I wanted to touch on that thread because I'm I'm aware you've been an a cappella singer almost all your life. You're very musically gifted. Uh, I wanted to understand a little bit about the importance of creativity in your scientific and your business work, how pivotal has been having that outlet to kind of restoring yourself, but also just having that creative field to
1: explore and play. Has that imbued your work? absolutely but maybe even more so it is for me it's an opportunity to be mindful like mindfulness in itself to be present in music when you are a performer you don't really get a, a retake you have an audience in front of you and whatever you're playing or singing it's that moment and uh, you can make the analogy with jazz if you hit a wrong note you kind of do a little doodle around it make it interesting and you move on and you bring the people in the room with you. If you apply that in life, that you anticipate mistakes and you make sure they're not catastrophic, that's kind of what we did with a safety discussion, right? We say it will fail. It just cannot be catastrophic. So it's like a jazz pianist way of science and innovation. So I think it is extremely helpful in life to allow yourself to be Really focused and to decide where you spend your energy. And um, perhaps this is a skill set that we will have to really instill in our children growing up with a lot of distractions. Um, the power of focus, multitasking, sure, but when it really matters, focus. And um, so I think that's on the creative process. Um, but I would say, through having been uh, a chorus leader, um, an instrumentalist in, in the land of music, the most that I'm grateful for is actually the training to be um, a, a leader that demand the player's best game. Uh, a leader that inspires and perhaps intimidates by level of performance expectation, but never through punishment. A leader that can set real deadlines and paint out what good looks like, which is critical in the arts, especially when you put on larger productions, that you can visualize this together to execute. And deadlines are very clear in the artistic space. We have a concert on, and that's the date. (laughs) So running a business like that is not so shabby and we can always have fun with some of the analogies and and all this stuff but i think the leadership of compassion and strictness with humility with grace with grit and perseverance and the idea that you can't really wing it you've got to practice and you got to be prepared <laughs> i love that i love that you're
0: bringing the jazz to science but I, i'd never thought about some of those dimensions of how all music and particularly leading you know, uh, in, in, in a kind of conductor sense brings so many great lessons uh, to, to leadership more generally. I think that's so powerful. I wanted to continue in that vein and ask you, I, I find it so fascinating. You've got more than 80 patents at various stages of filing. You, you've pioneered so much technology, but you've also been pioneering in the fact you've taken a handful of companies, you scaled them internationally. Which one's harder? Which one has taught you more about yourself or demanded more of you?
1: Oh, that's an awesome question. I think um, they're both hard, actually. Um, they, they both demand um, humility and perseverance. And um, I think they have both taught me that while I may have the gift of seeing what is possible, and the gift of um, verbalizing what that can be. It is never just me. It is actually the gift of getting other people to say, hmm, do I care about that? Or do I just want to sit on the sidelines? And it's the fact that you can get other people to engage in a technical vision or a business vision or perhaps a policy vision where you say, you know, we can do this. And if you can break it down in ways so people can contribute on multiple levels, that's probably the victory. So it's almost the same process both in technology and in business in my mind. I wanted to ask you, obviously this whole series is about
0: trailblazing and one of the the things we're really keen to explore is, did you find that trailblazing came with a cost? What's been the hardest part of pioneering for
1: you? Uh, so it's like everybody says ah, that's impossible <laughs> or the classic question when you have a new idea of a new future a new way is like prove it Can you give me comps no it's a new idea dude I can't give you comps that's the whole point <laughs> but I can I can describe what that could look like I can explain perhaps what that would mean I can explain that. And I can basically foresee if this happens, how are you impacted? But I can't prove it. By definition, it is a new idea. It has never been done before. But I am always fascinated as uh, like the, the request for um, all the analyst reports on this. I was like, well, all the analyst reports look behind you. What happened before? And then they tried to make a forecast. And when a market or an idea tips, they're always behind. And when the hype is too high, they're always too high. And to me, that's almost depressing because we already know that from economic history. So, but that happens still. And I find it really hard because it makes no sense to me.
0: (laughs) And what for you has been the most powerful way that you, I guess, have steeled yourself or been able to, I guess, get through all that? Because I can imagine, I mean, you're someone that has this naturally bubbly, vivacious, positive energy but I imagine there are days where that overwhelms you. We're hearing, prove it or it can't be done, just becomes a little bit too much. How do you get through on those days?
1: So it's interesting. Like, so I have always tried to have a house with some level of a little garden or somewhere where you can go outside. Um, to, I, I enjoy physical workouts, I enjoy friends. So the pandemic has been hard for me. I have so super extrovert, like being locked in your house, let's just say it was not my first year. (laughs) Um, I I can imagine it was also hard for you. (laughs) I think that um, by, I mean, it's the the life lesson of almost every religion and philosophy. I get a lot of energy by doing greater good and helping in a mission. And I stand up Um, from a lot of criticism and all this stuff because i know that at the end of the day i strive to create the mission it is never about me so i get attacked a lot or ideas get attacked i fight for what i think is right and that gives me enormous satisfaction at the end of the day
0: i love that you're such a crusader for good um i'm so interested to (laughs) Step away from the analyst reports that are taking us back, as you just mentioned, and cast our eyes forward to the future. You've often said that there's broad consensus on where the world needs to be by 2050, but there's a lot of disagreement around the path to get there. Can you talk us through the tension and how you think we can resolve that?
1: Yes, absolutely. So there is no discussion that we have to take down CO2 emission. And it's so interesting to me that the pathway to doing that is it's almost like, um, it's almost like diet. This is how many calories you take in. This is how many calories you should make use of not to increase your weight. Right. That's not hard as a concept and yet we prove it's really hard. So when you go on a diet, a carbon or CO2 diet, it means I consume this much and I generate this much. Why is that so hard? Because it comes down to a massive sacrifice. So when we look at pathways to get there, you need, first of all, you need money. So my my humility in having served on some of the COP meetings, where some of the not so rich countries stand up and say, I don't understand what's wrong with you coming from Australia or Japan or United States or Europe. Like, what is wrong with you? Don't you understand? Our number one policy is to make sure people don't starve. Like, what is wrong with you? We cannot afford this. And where we stand, or I stand up and say, I understand that actually. And what you don't maybe appreciate is it's those people that get hit the hardest. So we have to make space for that discussion. We have to stay in the conversation long enough to say, What if, so what if in your example of people starving, what do you need to do differently? Is it really to give access to kerosene mini kitchens? Is that it? Or is there a different way? Because that basically contaminates their local environment so much more than any carbon footprint from any of the rich countries where you have filters or carbon capture. That is a problem too, but let's make this local. And this is again where I come back to the ecosystem of local economics. If you can make it local, you can make it tangible and you can have a discussion with local stakeholders and global sponsors will come in and say, we have seen this work before. And this is where comps are very important. Here are the special bullets or the special points that we have to think about in this particular market. but. If we parallel that to a region over there, we have seen something similar work, and this is how we resolve. That is, I think, very, very interesting. And we have seen it work on multiple points. And with this data revolution and media revolution, where we actually consume stories from all over the world, the fact that we share some of these success stories, as you do in in this series, is really important. It can be done, and this is how we could envision it. So to break down from here to 2050, or maybe it has to be 2040, depending on how quickly we implement, I would make it even more dramatic. And I I try in the discussions where I'm in the room to say, no, it is. What do we do between now and 2025? And then between 2025 and 2030, because 2030 to 2050 is just the progression from there. So it's not good enough to say we, uh, we banned this type of drive or this type of carbon. We have to say, what is the goal at 2025 and 2030? These are within our career spans. And while it's easier to make a decision six months or one quarter from now, five years is quite possible for most. And 10 years, you can at least think about it. Most of the people who are in their professional careers in decision-making positions have experienced at least one 10 year period where they had some level of awareness. And I think that's the, that's the secret actually, and we, we have to make it transactionable. 2025 is critical. This is four years from now. What can we do? What can we do in the economy that we sit today with the economic framework that we have today And what can we not do if we cannot do some of those things that we must do? What do we need to change and who owns that decision? And it almost always comes back to, it is the policy leaders. So typically politicians or national leaders and big business, they have all the power but the thoughts regularly don't come from those two. So it has to be this push. And I think this is also where there is now a hunger to understand. We have climate migration at unprecedented rates. We have heat, we have people uh, resorting to beaches in the summertime. So when you have seen that, all of a sudden you're a little more keen to understand what an alternative to that escape is. If you have experienced it, or if you have a friend. So now we're in the circle that the pandemic illustrated. It touched us. It touched our lives, our friends, our family. Therefore, we can relate to it. And four years and 10 years is within that realm, in my opinion.
0: I think that's such an important question. Every to this conversation can take away and ask themselves, what can I, what can we as an organisation be doing? doing 25 What does that look like? If we can't do it by then, what do we need to change? Christina, one of the things that struck me in what you were describing is that you said, well, sort of, we don't have the space really for developing country conversations, that we're still not really localising some of this with the degree that we need to. Is that a need to change the way existing forums are working or who's attending them? Or is this a need for a different forum that's including different voices how do you see that needing to progress do we have the right people i guess at the table to have the conversations that need to be had
1: yeah i think actually this is where the rich world has to lead we have no choice we have to say it has to start in where you have a high degree of education a high degree of innovation those countries have to start because they prove it's possible. And um, while some governments are now even saying it's the philanthropic arm that will play a critical role in enabling us to see examples of this. Uh, I believe that's true. When you have shareholder pressure saying, show me your ESG goals, your environmental goals for your company at an annual meeting, That used to be a joke on our New Year's soirees. Oh, I'm going to ask these questions. Who cares? You know, that was kind of funny. It's no longer funny. It is actually happening. So the tide has already shifted. There are more people concerned about this. And the more questions you ask, and eventually the more you can vote with your money or purchases that you can influence, that is probably the simplest way. Like if you knew, that plastic bottles are a problem how much of a problem is it? Is it like the biggest problem or is this a way for an industry that profits off this particular issue to divert your attention the answer to that question is yes in this case but it's a good example of what is the real issue the real issue is We can't burn fossil fuels. We actually would like to make other things in those industries that we can use, but not at the expense of everything else. So it becomes a complicated discussion very quickly, which means we have to have greater engagement in shaping this. So again, an ecosystem, there's not a one winner, there's not a one policy or a one company, it is a movement actually. So embracing that movement and allowing a little bit of discomfort in the room and saying, that is so interesting. You say that, here's a different perspective. It doesn't have to be in your face, shouting each other down. It isn't that clear. There are many ways to solve for these problems, but the goalposts, like the concert date is 2025 and 2030. And for those, we got to be really clear. What does good look like? What is in the program for those two concerts? So what does a successful concert look like for you in 2025? So in 2025, I would like to have uh, lived through less consumption in general. I hope we can harvest the knowledge from the pandemic that yeah, we could probably buy less stuff, which immediately slows down how we think about stuff. Um, that people actually are eating more plant based food. It is such a small sacrifice. And if we talk about the hell, I mean, in addition to being better for the earth, it's also better for you as a person. So again, we're back to you and your family, um, that we get more engaged in human connection, which the pandemic has shown us the dreadfulness when we don't have that. And we basically invest more in experiences rather than things. I believe all that's possible. That we put together a real cost structure to carbon. That's on a policy side. And that we think about what that means in, a, in an economy. In some countries, it's gonna be very easy to say, you know what, we're just gonna make a policy. All fossil, cars, fossil fuel cars are banned on 2025. And we make that decision today. All new cars. You could. It is enough time and the current industry will say, That's crazy. Why? It is even crazier that we <laughs> destroy our environment deliberately. That's crazy. So it's a little inconvenient, but we have so much momentum right now. And it's actually physically possible. wouldn't? so if it's not twenty twenty five, To do 26. You surely don't have to wait to 2050. And I'll tell you, it's too late. Um, That I would like to do. So that's like a consumer behavior policy, economic development. I think it's great when we agree on what a green job is. I think it's good when the government helps set frameworks for allowing different constellations of new energy. Again, don't pick winners and losers. Let the people who know something about that. Meet objectives, set targets for what the electricity cost should be, include the cost of cleanup. Uh, be transparent about particulates uh, being spread out in the in the air in urban environments and link that it used to be your number one cause of death. Now it's COVID, but it used to be particulates in your lungs. So interesting. We never really talk about that, but we could. We could let that data get out. And we could also uh, put it into a perspective of, so that's all positive things you can do. But I think the debate, so for me, the concert in 2025 also has to um, include, let me use a musical analogy, some tunes in the minor key. So we have to talk about what we don't want. So climate migration, what does that mean? It means there are elements of the earth Across the equator, that are inhabitable or not. We make that decision now and we own that decision. And if we don't make a decision to try to starve off the climate climate change as it goes right now, we should live with the consequences. So we can't, on one hand, say we're going to continue to emit and it's just too bad for you guys who live there. We're just going to shut our borders. So maybe we can do that if it's a 1 million people coming, maybe 10 million. I don't think we can do it when it's 300 million. So we have a very different scenario. And I think that has to be a very vivid piece in the concept in 2025, something really clearly defined. So we know what we are contemplating and that we have both of those discussions. Here are some positive scenarios that we're actively driving towards, and here are some rather negative scenarios that we are actively trying to avoid. And without that, I think we basically lose the opportunity that today is still afforded to us.
0: Christina, I have loved talking with you. Your level of clarity and, and specificity in the way that you've thought through these things and what the steps need to look like is so refreshing, can I say, you know, and, and as well your energy and your passion for this. Uh, like it, I feel like I could go run a marathon after our conversation. Um, might have to be indoors with the current state of restrictions, but that's all right. Um, but I did want to ask you, you know, we, we've covered such a wide range of topics. We're speaking to leaders from right across the world in this series who are interested in this, are challenging themselves to do more, want to be at that concert with you in 2050, leaning into the challenges and heading towards the positives. What message would you like to leave them with at the end of this conversation?
1: Yeah, so I think it is um, humility and collaboration. So humility for what you know, when you know, fight for that data and um, on the perseverance, like pursue that opportunity all the way. Um, I think this is our time to fulfil the vision that we have given ourselves of being stewards we pay it forward as other people paid it forward for us i don't think it's a moral compass discussion exactly it's actually again for you and your family why take photographs and try to save your family hair loans if there is none such things in 50 years
0: Well, we better get our skates on. I think a reminder for each and every one of us to challenge ourselves to ask that question of what does being a good steward mean, to think about that 2025, what are we doing, what change are we making, and commit to to those actions. Christina, you've given us so much rich food for thought, and I want to thank you as well for just the stunning example that you are in the way that you've devoted your life and your work to pioneering and helping to create a better tomorrow. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for the way that you show up in these conversations and challenge existing thinking and create space for different voices to be heard. Uh, it is absolutely inspiring and I'm very grateful that we have you leading the charge towards one, one hell of a great concert in 2025.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having
0: me. Thanks to EY for partnering with us to amplify people following the path of most resistance. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment, let us know, join the movement.